All right, so we are continuing our study, and like I said, I'm closing out on Proverbs temporarily, and I'm going to move into a new study, but uh, I want to close out on Proverbs. Turn to Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9, and this is a, um, a request made by this godly man to the Lord. Um, he says here in uh, Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9, he says, Two things have I required of thee. Of course, that word required is like a request, a very strong request. So this man's very serious about this prayer. He says, Deny me them not before I die. He says, Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. And so, uh, before we get started, let me ha- go ahead and open up in prayer, and then we'll get right into our lesson. Father in heaven, um, we are so grateful, Lord, uh, to know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Uh, we're so grateful, Lord, for the Word of God that you've given us, Father, that it is indeed a light unto our path. And Holy Father, we pray that you would uh, just impress it upon our hearts, the importance of your word, the importance of your truth, the importance of the light that is contained in there. And Father, as we look at these things that this man has prayed that uh, you would remove far from him, these vanities and lies, I pray, Lord God, through the reading of your word, through the study of your word, that you would um, help us, Lord, to also recognize these very same vanities and recognize the lies for what they are truly what they are is that they are lies and help us O Lord to keep our minds and our hearts fixed upon you for indeed you are our life and our hope and in you we, we trust completely in all things concerning this life we thank you Father for the blessed hope before us and we thank you most of all for Jesus Christ who provides that hope in his name we pray amen so like I said, we're considering Proverbs chapter 30, uh, verses 7 through 9 in regards to what this godly man who has acknowledged God in all of his ways, he, he has requested or re- required of the Lord. Notice what he says. He says, before I die. Before I die. I think that's very insightful. Because this is a recognition uh, by this man's part that what he has requested of God is something that's going to be a, a lifetime Endeavor or a lifetime battle. Something that he knows that uh, he's going to have to meet day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, until that day comes when he awakes up in, in glory. So this tells me that these vanities that he prays that God would keep him from and these lies that he would want to be kept from, these are things that, are, that assault us every day of our life. Every day of our life. So that means we can never rest because of these vanities and because of these lies. They're always out there, always ready to trip us up, always ready to lure us away. So he requires of God, keep him from these vanities, keep me from these lies, because any godly person, deep in their heart, what is it they want to do? They want to please God. They want to follow God. Uh, They want to do those things that uh, God is happy with as far as them. You know, they want to love God. And that's what this man wants to do. He says, "I, I want to seek you, Lord, above all what this world offers. 
You're, you're my number one. You're my number one. So his prayer, if you stop and think about it, is a very powerful prayer. And it's a very distinctive prayer. He says, remove from me vanities and lies. And I think sometimes in our prayer life, our prayer life may not be powerful because our prayer life isn't distinctive. Right? Um, it's more general. Lord bless us. Okay. Well, there's thousands and thousands of blessings. Which one do you want? So be distinctive in your prayers. If you want powerful prayers, then be Thank you. Distinctive. Specific. Right? Be specific in your prayers. So what he's praying is, he says, remove from me these things. So the first thing that we looked at and we went to the book of Ecclesiastes, so go ahead and look at Ecclesiastes. That's where we're going to end up. The first vanity we looked at was the vanity and the lie of human wisdom. The vanity and the lie of human wisdom. And the vanity of human wisdom is that we don't have a clue about what life is all about. If you remember, one man said that life is nothing more than a hallucination, a trick of the brain. And another man says, we'll never come to to understand what life is all about. So as far as the man under the sun, living without the benefit of God's revelation, to him, life is pretty much, we don't know, we can't know, and it's it's just all a big game. It's just a big hallucination. That's the vanity of human wisdom. But we can know, can't we? We can know because we know Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. So we can know. It's not like we can't know. We can know. First uh, Corinthians 2.12 Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. So we can know. If you know Jesus Christ, if you've got God's word, you can know. So that's the, that's the lie and the vanity of human wisdom. Then we looked at the vanity of human labor. The vanity of ceaseless labor that begs the question, what is the true value of everything that I do? What is the real worth? What is the eternal outcome? I mean, for the man who lives under the sun, there is no eternal value. All his labor is for naught. I mean, it, it ceases when he dies. It ceases when he dies. That's, that's the vanity of human labor. Remember I used the analogy of a can of peaches? The man without God, he's been given this gift of a can of peaches, and he can sit there and he can look at that can of peaches, and he can turn it over in his hand, and he can shake it. He can read the label. He can imagine what it's like on the inside of that can, but he really doesn't know anything about the inside of that can. He can't taste the fruit that's inside that can. But the individual who knows God, the person who knows Jesus Christ as the Savior, not only has been given a gift of the can of peaches, but he's also been given the gift of the can opener. (laughs) So you can open that can of peaches and you can enjoy the fruit that's inside that can. See, everything that we do, if we do it for the glory of God, there is value in that labor. There is value in that labor. 
So the next uh, one I want to look at is the vanity of human, uh, uh, the vanity and lie of human purpose. And they're all, if you stop and think about it, all these vanities are linked together. They all kind of dovetail together. So look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 21. And if somebody would please read verse 21 for me. Ecclesiastes 2, 21. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity. Yet to a man that hath not labored therein shall he be it for his portion. This also is vanity and a great evil. Okay, again, this, this also ties into the vanity of human wisdom and the vanity of human labor. All of these vanities are hooked together. They're all kind of uh, joined together. And what we're looking at here is life under the perspective of someone who uh, is living under the sun, uh, generally with no regard of God, no regard for eternity, uh, just a mere existence, if you will, or as Ecclesiastes one thirteen refers to it, a sore travail. Because life without God, essentially, that's what it is. It's a, it's a sore travail. Uh, the purpose of one's life uh, consists of uh, that central uh, motivating uh, purpose. You know, what, what makes you get up in the morning? What makes you get up in the morning? What is the reason you get up in the morning and, and start your day? Uh, what, is, what is your purpose? Uh, the purpose guides life's decisions. Uh, the purpose uh, will influence people's behavior. Uh, a person's purpose will shape their character. Uh, it's, it's the central focus of their, of their whole existence. Uh, some people, um, their purpose in life is, is connected to a vocation, right? A particular career. Uh, surgeon, whatever it is, uh, some, uh, you know, that's what makes life meaningful to them is their, is their vocation. Uh, one source I read said our purpose is to evolve during our lifetime because that is consistent with our evolutionary purpose. That doesn't really answer the question, does it? That's just, that's like taking a ball and letting it roll downhill because, well, that's just what happens. There's really no answer there. You know, what exactly is, is meant by our evolutionary purpose? You know, I, uh, the common catchphrase today, you hear it a lot, and it's going to change, but it, it all says the same thing. It's follow your dream. Who's, who's heard that on television? Yeah, follow your dream. Follow whatever that dream may be. Follow your dream. One's dream is one's purpose in life. Whatever that dream may be. Like I said, popular program pro- programming has shows that focus on that very thing. People following their dreams. There's there's folks who wanna who have the dream of of um, entertainment. They want to be an entertainer, right? You've got uh, what is it? American Idol and some of those other programs, uh, talents, some, some talent programs, so they want, you know, that surgery. Some, uh, you've got programs about the business scene. You know, that's their dream, to become a, a successful business person. Then you've got the romance scene, right? To find their perfect mate. You've got the bachelor and the bachelorette. 
I think I've watched like 15 seconds of that and just gagged. And just anyway. So it's always, you know, you always hear the same thing, you know. Well, it's always been my dream to fill in the blank. All my lifetime, I've always wanted to fill in the blank. And I'm thinking, really, all your lifetime? I mean, the minute you were born, you knew that you wanted to be an American Idol singer? What happens when the dream fails? Or when someone else who has that very same dream, their dream comes true, but yours doesn't? What then? Or let's say your dream does come true. Does that mean your life is over? Does that mean you you fulfilled your purpose and so you might as well check out? I mean, what happens after that? Is your life worth continuing or are you going to have to find a new dream so you'll have a new purpose in life? Ecclesiastes 2.23 says, For all his days are sorrows, and his travail grief, yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. People are always pursuing that elusive dream. It's like trying to grasp the cloud. Trying to grasp a cloud. How often have we witnessed the travail of people who have set their hopes and dreams on some temporal, earthly achievement to only see it evaporate. Recently in our neighborhood, we had a tragedy. And I don't want to make light of the tragedy. But they had our neighborhood blocked off because there was a man who had lost his job and he was in the middle of the street with a pistol in his hand. His whole purpose in his eyes was gone because he lost his job. And so he took his life right there in the middle of the street. See, that's the vanity and lie of human purpose. You know, if if it's not fulfilled, if if you're focused on the here and now, if, if under the sun is the most important thing in life, and then something happens, it just kind of leaves you empty. Empty. And I don't mean to make light of what took place. It's just sad. What if your particular dream is immoral? What if your particular dream is hurtful to others? What if it's criminal? Or what if your dream is, ha- is, is hijacked by others and them taking advantage of you is part of their dream? That happens all the time. Under the sun, it happens all the time. That's not to say that all human, uh, human purposes are, you know, are... There are some noble human purposes. You know, there's folks that have given their lives for the freedom and liberty of others, for for making an an injustice a justice. Our nation was founded upon uh, noble purposes, noble ideals. 
Again, I mentioned folks hijacking those things. That's what happens. You know, men and women throughout history have fought and died for great purposes, noble purposes. But there, here's the problem. Many of these noble acts and many of these sacrifices made are often undone by wicked people, aren't they? So it's a continuous treadmill. It's a continuous treadmill. And perfect people follow other people's dreams with the purpose of hijacking those dreams. And these people are often filled with greed and pride and and envy. Jesus warned about that. Matthew 15, 18. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. Even in your human purpose, there's still that issue of the heart, isn't there? That's why Proverbs warns about guarding one's heart, the issues of the heart. And this is what this godly man in Proverbs is praying about. It's about the issues of the heart. Even in human purpose, there there can be this appearance of an endless cycle that goes nowhere. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. This is a very popular passage. In fact, I think a song was written about this back in the 60s. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says, To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. And then look what verse 9 says. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? So under the sun there's this continuous cycle. This continuous cycle. But for those of us who know Jesus Christ, for those of us that believe in the Word of God, we understand that there is more to it than just this cycle. Right? We understand that once we step off that treadmill, that's not the end of it. That's not the end of it. But it's this internal spiritual corruption of the human heart due to man's fallen sin nature that taints all of human purpose. Ecclesiastes 5.8 says, If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter, for he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. There is justice... And we know who that supreme judge is. We know who that supreme judge is. But this truth often offends the worldly. (laughs) 
the individual who lives merely for for life under the sun see the lie that is proffered to the worldling is that humans left to themselves without the aid of God without God's revelation right without salvation humans left to themselves have the power in and of themselves to make those dreams come true that humans have the power and the wisdom uh, to prevail eventually to prevail to come out on top Uh, that man will be his own savior in the end have we not heard that sure we've heard that preached all it takes is more effort a little more wisdom a little more willpower a little more money a little more sacrifice as long as I'm not the one doing the sacrificing right a little more government a little more government a little more education a little more of this and a little more of that how long has man been at that quite a while and I still don't see any improvement man's heart is still sinful still sinful so what is that evolutionary purpose what is that evolutionary purpose that they talk about the truth that human wisdom and labor and purpose scoff at is that the only hope that mankind has is Jesus Christ the only hope we have is Jesus Christ and submitting to his will but they scoff at that they scoff at that the worldling drives from their minds that there is going to be a great accounting Ecclesiastes 3.17 said I said in my heart God shall judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work you can't leave God out because one of these days these men and women who leave God out of their life is going to have to answer to the God they left out of their life they'll have to face the vanity of human purpose and the vanity of human wisdom and the vanity of human labor and all these other vanities that this godly man is praying for God to remove from him and they're all going to stand there before God with these vanities and not a one of them is going to be able to stand up to the truth in the light of God's presence Philippians 3.14 says I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus you want a purpose in life you make Jesus Christ that purpose you make Jesus Christ that purpose that's the only true purpose in this life that has an eternal outcome for the good right what is it the apostle Paul breaks it down even whatsoever you do whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do do all to the glory of God you make God your purpose in life if the person of Jesus Christ is absent from your purpose in life then you'll be left with nothing to show for your life when your life uh, is examined before the throne of God 
Right? I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, all of us are going to stand before the Bema seat of Jesus Christ. And there's going to be what? Gold and silver and precious stones? Or there's going to be wood and hay and stubble? That's for the believer. You want to invest in those things that are eternal. So you want to live your life for Christ. And that's what this godly man is praying about here in Proverbs chapter 30. That the purposes of this old world don't put him on this little, what do you call that? Squirrel cage or whatever that is? Hamster wheel. He says, God, don't let me get trapped on this hamster wheel. Well, well, this side goes this way, this side goes this way. But he said, don't let me get trapped on that hamster wheel. Running for all I'm worth for, to no avail. For no purpose. For no purpose. Okay, so is it wrong for me to want a career as a doctor? No. But do it for the glory of God. Is it wrong for me to be an auto mechanic? No. But do it for the glory of God. Put God into your life. Acknowledge Him in all of thy ways. That's what this godly man is praying. That's what this godly man is praying. That this whole world will not drive him from the true purpose in worshiping and serving his God. Any questions on that? Any comments? We good? All right. Wow. I expected that to take a little longer. Vanity of um, vanity and live human rivalry. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. In verse 4. And when somebody gets there, would you mind reading verse 4 of Ecclesiastes 4, please? I got it for you. Chapter, verse 4. Again, I considered all terrestrials every right work that for this a man envy is envy for his neighbor this is also vanity and vexation of spirit there you go for, and every right work that for this a man is envied of his neighbor Proverbs 14.30 says a sound heart is the life of the flesh but envy the rottenness of bones Proverbs 27.4 says, Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? Folks are just envious of other folks. They see somebody else getting ahead in life, somebody else that might have a nicer home, somebody else that might have a, a, a prettier wife or a more handsome, caring husband, some, you know, whatever, whatever it is. People envy other people for what they have and they don't have. And so there's a rivalry. A rivalry that takes place. Now, 
Uh, competition, competition can produce good results. I mean, there's, there's sports empires built on competition, isn't there? And you've got those teams out there, and they're all competing, and, and you see some really good games because of this competition. So competition can produce positive results, even in the business world. Competition is good in the business world because someone's always trying to make a better product or a better service. You take that out and you try to level the playing field, then you remove that element out of there and then the product starts to suffer and the service starts to suffer. But what generally happens, rivalry sets in. This envy sets in, this rivalry. And when this rivalry sets in, then often there's loss and destructive behavior takes over. Anybody heard the phrase, it's a dog-eat-dog world? Yeah, that's what happens when rivalry takes over. As competition intensifies, uh, people become more likely to undertake actions to keep the other person from getting ahead. Like here. All of these guys are climbing up and what are they trying to do? They're trying to topple the next guy in front. Ever seen folks on the highway zipping zipping in and out of traffic trying to get that one car ahead of everybody? It, It cracks me up. You know, it, um, there's a, we go out to Kansas sometimes and there's all those stoplights and you've always got that knucklehead trying to race ahead of everybody and you know where they end up? Right next to me or, yeah, at the stoplight. They never seem to get it. But boy, I tell you what, they put themselves at risk and put everybody else at risk just to get that one car more. Researchers have found out that in instances uh, when um, this competition turns into um, rivalry, um, then things like sabotage in business takes place, or in politics, slander takes place, um, all sorts of dishonest dealings, uh, corporate spying. All this kind of stuff, because of this envy, because of this rivalry. It was envy and rivalry that slew Abel, if you stop and think about it. Cain was jealous of his brother. There was this rivalry between Cain and Abel for, you know, uh, God, uh, God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but he rejected Cain's. It was rivalry and envy that brought unrest in the house of Jacob between his two wives, Leah and Rachel. They were always, there was this rivalry for uh, Jacob's attention going on in that home. So there was always this unrest. And this unrest even settled into the, the boys, into the offspring. Because these boys, what did they do with Joseph? Because of envy. Because of rivalry. Yeah, they sold him into slavery. They wanted to kill him at first. But then they sold him into slavery. 
Pilate recognized this about the Jews when the Jews delivered Jesus up to Pilate. He knew that they delivered him up for what? Envy. Envy. This same thing the Apostle Paul ran into when he was out preaching the gospel. In Acts chapter 13, 43, now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Verse 44, in the next seventh day, Sabbath day, came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. What was the reaction of the Jews? But when the Jews saw the multitude, they were filled with envy. And they spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. They were filled with envy. They saw that the whole city came to hear Paul preach. And they didn't come to the synagogue. So this envy brought about this rivalry. It wasn't so much what Paul was preaching at, I I may be misspeaking here, it was, but what I'm saying is, Paul was bringing in the crowds, and the Jews saw this, and they were envious of it. I've seen that in churches. I've seen that in churches. One pastor becoming envious of another pastor, because that pastor brings in more than the other pastor. Again, competition can be healthy and can be productive, but it's that wicked heart of man that turns that competition into a, into a rivalry, into jealousy and envy, something that is not good. It's this rivalry and envy among nations that leads to world wars. Stop and think about it. This whole mess started because a certain creature envied God's position. He wanted God's place. And ever since then, there's been this unholy rivalry on this creature's part. Totally against everything God stands for. You know, God's for life, he's for death. God's for love, he's for hate. This wicked, wicked rivalry. The lie that's proffered here in uh, human rivalry is uh, the only way to get ahead in life and be noticed by others is to step on those who are in your way to uh, topple those on your way to the top that are before you and while you're doing it watch out for the joker behind you because he's doing the same thing It's that uh, do unto others before they do unto you. That's the way a lot of people live. That's the way a lot of people live. Of course, that wouldn't be in the church, would it? Would that be among believers, you think? Matthew 10.35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Come unto him, saying, Master, we would that you that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Okay, here's their desire. And he said, he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit, one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand, in thy glory. 
Wow, that's pretty, that's, pretty, that's pretty bold. That's pretty bold. And Jesus said unto them, You know what, not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. Jesus said unto them, You shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. Now here is the issue. Verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. Rivalry. Rivalry. Can it happen in a church? You betcha. You betcha. I've seen this attitude of rivalry in churches. I've seen it where certain men in leadership are pitted against each other in ministry. Pitted against each other. Even the wives get involved in this foolishness. Even the wives get involved. I've seen ministries within a church take on this attitude of we are, we are more, our ministry is more important than your ministry. What we're doing is more important than what you're doing. That just provokes rivalry. Provokes division in a church. Rivalry, envy, competition, that, that never ends well. Never ends well. Do you think that's a sign of a spiritual church or a carnal church? That's a carnal church. That's what that is. That's a carnal church. 1 Corinthians 3.3 3, For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions... Are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another I am of Paulus, are ye not carnal? This rivalry in the church, instead of, instead of being united, working together in the same spirit, after the same goal in leading the lost, to the Christ and discipling folks? No, we're, we're fighting and bickering among ourselves because we think we're more important than our brother or our sister. Or our ministry is more vital than his ministry or, 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 or her ministry. Or, or his class is, is bigger than so-and-so's class. That shouldn't be in a church, but it's there. It's there. You know, the Bible teaches four consequences of rivalry and envy that people often get ensnared in. Turn to Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30. We need to guard our hearts about this because I think all of us can be guilty of it. All of us can be guilty of it. We listen to these folks brag about themselves and then we take it to heart. You know, we take it personal. Don't take it personal. Proverbs 14.30 says, A sound heart 
is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. People can literally become sick with envy. You ever heard that? Somebody becoming sick with envy? Um, Health researchers, doctors, they've discovered a link between envy and a person's physical and mental health. There is a direct connection between that spiritual condition and one's physical condition. This sense of rivalry that creates envy and jealousy takes control of these individuals in such a way that it increases the stress levels. They become stressed out. And because of these increased stress levels, that has adverse conditions on your physical heart as well as your spiritual heart. People actually get heart disease because of being jealous and envious. They've even shown that certain forms of cancer is the result of being overtaken with this sense of rivalry and envy and jealousy. So they become physically ill. They become physically ill because they're spiritually sick. They're spiritually sick. Psalm 73, Asaph wrote this psalm and he's confessing that he's sick inside because he's seeing the lost get ahead in life. And here he is, a godly man, and he's just barely making ends meet and he can't understand why. So he's, he's, he's literally getting physically sick because he's seeing this lot, these lost people get ahead in life and, and, and he's struggling. It was causing him to be depressed. It was causing him to question God's goodness. Even, even to become hopeless. What's the use? Right? What's the use? Eli Faz in Job 5.2 testifies that people have lost their lives due to unchecked rivalry and envy. Remember the Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan situation? Where um, Harding's ex-husband arranged for some thugs to attempt to cripple uh, the other skater, Nancy, I think is her name. That was rivalry. That was envy. Can you imagine going through life with that stigma on you? Whenever anybody hears Tanya Harding, they don't think of a great skater, do they? No, they remember that. They remember that. Proverbs 3.31 says, Envy thou not the oppressor, and choose none of his ways. It's too bad Tanya's husband didn't read that. It's a spiritual sickness often manifested in a physical physical uh, sickness. So the godly man of Proverbs chapter 30 is praying that he doesn't become overwhelmed by this vanity of human rivalry in so much that he would do harm not only to himself but also harm to others. Also harm to others. Another um, another thing about um, rivalry and envy 
is it will give you a unhealthy, unwholesome a desire to be in the limelight. You will obsessively crave the attention of others that you feel like you deserve. Why is that? Because you see others getting attention. And you crave that very same attention. Jesus spoke a parable in Luke 14, 7-11 concerning those who desire the chief seats at feasts. And so they would choose a seat that didn't belong to them. Up, you know, up close. A place of honor. And in the end, this, this envy, this rivalry, this, this desire to be noticed. What happened to these folks? They got embarrassed. Luke 14.8 When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room. Least a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him, and he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and now begin with shame to take the lowest room. How many times have we seen somebody push themselves to the front only to be shamed and embarrassed later? People buy into this lie all the time. You deserve to be noticed. You deserve to be rewarded, even though you may not really deserve it, right? You should exert yourself into these positions, into these places. You should, you should, you know, be more aggressive, more assertive, and elbow your way, even if you don't qualify. You deserve to be there. Proverbs 12.15 Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. One of the keys... To, to the Christian life is humility. I'm telling you, one of the major keys in Christian life is humility. He says here, be not wise in your own conceits. This is an interesting word, conceits. When we think of a conceited person, what are we generally thinking of? Someone who has an excessive pride about themselves, right? High-minded type of person. But what I, what's interesting here about this word conceit is that it comes from a word that speaks about what one has to offer to the church. Some gift or sacrifice or blessing or talent or skill. You remember the guys in the treasury and they were throwing in their offering for everybody to see making a big show of it now who was it that Jesus pointed out out of all of those big givers the widow and her two mites right 
But here are these guys, boy, they're making a big show of what they can give to the church, what they can offer to the church. If you've got a gift to offer, if you've got a skill to offer, if you've got a talent to offer, be careful that you don't become wise in your own conceits. Be careful that it's, it's more about look at me than directing people to look at Jesus. Beware of the praise of men. Because the praise of men is very intoxicating. Very intoxicating. And what you'll end up doing is, instead of offering worship, you'll turn it into a performance. Just so you'll have men praise you. Be careful. And this godly man of Proverbs 30 is requesting of God that he doesn't fall under this craving for attention and recognition, but that he remains humble as he seeks to glorify God through his life. Even with what he has to offer. Another thing about uh, rivalry and envy, it'll cause uh, bickering and fights and arguments. I kind of touched on that a little bit. 1 Corinthians 3.3 3, for, for ye are yet carnal, for as there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? As I mentioned before, I've been personally involved in ministries where you have at least two or more individuals who believe themselves to be large and in charge. You know, as though they, they have to run the show or they've got all the answers or it's, it's my way or the highway type of attitude. And so you got these two or three individuals and they're constantly bickering and, sh- and um, jockeying for position. And all it does is cause hurt feelings and division and we get, we get nowhere. We get nothing accomplished. Get nothing accomplished. And then the, the fourth thing is rivalry and envy bring disunity unity rather than unity, disorder rather than order that results in an evil work rather than a work that glorifies the Lord. James 3.16 says, For where envy and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. Boy, that's the truth. This word confusion means a state of disorder. When you've got rivalry in a ministry, when you've got envy in a ministry, when you've got somebody trying to exert themselves in, into a position that they don't belong, then that ministry is just, there's just going to be chaos and disorder. There's always going to be one person bickering with another person, one person finding fault with another person. If a person doesn't get their way, then they get their nose out of joint. That causes instability, that causes disturbance in that ministry. Nothing is really accomplished for the glory of God because the glory is all about me. Because that's really what the focus is all about. It's what I want. It's my way. I'm the one that's supposed to shine. It's not only true in the ministry, it's also true in a home. 
true in a nation. Again, consider Joseph's brother who sold him into slavery. Why? Because they envied him because, his, because of the attention of, the, of, of their father was on Joseph. The Jews in Paul's day, I've read about it, they caused disruptions because of envy. I once knew a Christian brother that I had a very difficult time fellowshipping with him. And the reason why I had a very difficult time fellowshipping with this particular brother because it seemed like every time we would get together, it was like there was this competition between us. Like who was the more spiritual among us? And so instead of sharing and fellowship, it was like this crazy game going on. Not only to himself, he always always wanted to one-up. And it didn't matter who he was with. He was always one-upping them. He had a better devotional life. Uh, he had a better uh, time of studying God's Word. He had a, he, whenever he preached God's Word, he always did it better than, than you. His marriage was better. Everything, everything this man did was just so much better than others. I remember one time I had a, a sister in the Lord come up to me with tears in her eyes. I said, what's going on? So well, I just got done talking with so-and-so. So, what's going on? And she said, well, he made me feel so rotten. I said, well, how did he manage to do that? Well, he informed me that I, my prayer life was no good. And that she couldn't do any better than learning how to pray from him. That he, that she could benefit from him as being her mentor in how to pray. I said to her, don't listen to him. You pray in faith, you pray out of love. You don't listen to him. The conversation that you have between you and your father is between you and your father. And you talk to your father any, any way you feel you can. But don't let him do that to you. Don't let him do that to you. See, the lie that supports the vanity of human rivalry is this. You are exerting yourself over others. You're making yourself appear to be better than others. You know better. You are better. And that just creates division and hurt feelings. That's not being Christ-like. That's not being Christ-like. That kind of rivalry, human rivalry, that has a tendency to tear people down more so than build them up. We've got too much tearing down going on, folks. Way too much tearing down going on. What is it that Paul says in Philippians 2.5? 2, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And then if you follow that, what was it that Christ Jesus did? 
He came from the glory that he had in heaven and he put on this flesh to be just like you and me. So my question to you folks who think you're that much better, are you better than that? Is that the mind of Christ? Mark 10, 42-45 says, But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are counted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. It's not stepping on the little man that gets you ahead in the Christian life. It's you being the little man or little woman and serving others out of love and for the glory of God. Ephesians 4.2 says, With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So this godly man, he's praying, Lord, instead of me envying my neighbor, help me to love my neighbor for his good and for your glory. Any comments? Okay, let's close in prayer and I'll stop right there. Father in heaven, I need to learn how to love. I need to learn how to step back and let you step forward. I need to learn how to be more Christ-like. Not only in my deeds and my actions, but Father also in my words. So help me, Lord God, that I don't get stuck on these treadmills that this man was concerned about. Help me, O Lord God, to understand what it is to be like Christ. uh, To be encouraging and loving. I need a a makeover, Lord. (laughs) And uh, just simply come to you, Father, and trust in you. uh, Trust in your spirit that indwells me. Trust in your word that tells me and instructs me. Father, for everything that we do and say, may we give glory to you, knowing that you are our purpose in life. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.